Well, it was the first game of my sophomore year. I was playing football at Eden Prairie High School, and this was a big game for me. Uh, before my sophomore year, I was always uh, a short, stocky kid. And so I grew up playing football, but I was always playing line. You know, I was offensive line blocking or defensive line rushing the quarterback. But the summer of my sophomore year, I grew six inches in the span of about two and a half months. So when I reported for uh, two-a-days in the fall, I had grown six inches. I weighed the same, but now I was a tall, skinny kid, and my coach said, we can't play you on the line anymore. So they put me to that wide receiver, and I was just so excited because this was going to be the first time in my life that I was ever going to be allowed to touch the ball, right? That was a big deal. So it was the first game. We were playing against the Chaska Hawks, and uh, it, was a, it was a dead heat. The game was locked in back and forth, scoring the whole way. And it was the fourth quarter, and our team was moving the ball. We were driving the ball, and we got down to the 10-yard line, and there was like 30 seconds left in the game. And our coach called a pass play. And I'm thinking, wow, this is awesome. This is my chance, my big shot. So our coach called a pass play. I was playing right flanker. I I see it in my mind to this very day. I was playing right flanker. The cornerback was lined up next to me. And the play was designed for the quarterback to roll out to the right and find me in the end zone for the touchdown. At least that's how it was drawn up on the whiteboard, right? Well, the quarterback hiked the ball. And man, I made the slickest move you will ever see on a cornerback. Man, I faked this guy out inside, cut out back to the outside. I am standing there literally wide open. I'm standing there wide open, hands up, ready to catch the ball. 10-yard throw from our quarterback. The quarterback throws the ball. Beautiful spiral coming right at me. I see the ball coming. Hits me in the hands and clanks off my hands for an incomplete pass. I dropped the ball. I dropped the game-winning touchdown. And my heart was just broken. I was devastated. This was my one big shot. And you know something, friends? I didn't get a lot of passes thrown my way the rest of the season. You know, I, I quickly discovered in that moment that life can really be unfair sometimes. And you don't get a lot of second chances in life. In fact, just ask the Vikings' former kicker. He'll tell you. But, you know, if if you're a young person here, you know, I remember growing up playing Nintendo. Today it's Xbox and PlayStation. In real life, you don't get to hit the reset button. There's not a lot of second chances in real life. This world can be cruel. It can be unforgiving. And, And I think this is why one of the reasons why the story of Jonah is so compelling. Because one of the key themes that we see in the story of Jonah is that our God is a God of second chances. In a world where second chances are really few and far between, our God is a God who offers second chances. What a great message that is. And we're going to look at that this morning here as we continue our study of the book of Jonah. If you've been with us the past couple of weeks, you'll recall where we are in the story. Today we're moving into chapter 3. Uh, the story of Jonah begins with God speaking a word to the prophet Jonah. Jonah was a prophet in northern Israel in the 700s B.C. And God had come to Jonah and said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and I want you to speak to the people of Nineveh. 
And Jonah, instead of following God's will and going to Nineveh, Jonah, as we saw in week one, Jonah turned and went in the other direction. He ran as far away as he humanly could from Nineveh. He got on a ship, set sail in the Mediterranean Sea, headed west to Tarshish, the furthest outpost known to man at that time. You see, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Jonah knew that the Assyrians and the Ninevites were wicked, evil people. I mean, they were desperately wicked and evil. They were, they were the ISIS of their day and age, known for brutal acts against their enemies. And Jonah knew that if he were to go and preach to the Ninevites, Jonah knew there was a chance that they might actually repent of their sinful ways and turn to God. And Jonah knew that our God is a God of second chances. He's a God of grace and forgiveness and compassion. And so Jonah knew that if I preach to these guys, they might turn and God might then remove his judgment from them. And I don't want that because these guys are the bad guys. I want to see God rain down fire and brimstone on him. And so Jonah ran away from God's will for his life. But as we saw in week two, God pursued Jonah in a storm. And Jonah was caught in a storm. God used this storm in the sea to, to catch up to Jonah, to wake him up, to bring him to his senses. Jonah was thrown overboard from the ship he was running in. And there he found himself drowning in the seas without any hope. But as we saw last week, our God is also a God of deliverance. And God provided this miraculous means of a whale to rescue Jonah. And Jonah, as we saw last week, gave this incredible prayer of thanksgiving and praise to God for his deliverance. And then we saw and ended our passage last week with this miraculous whale, miraculous fish, vomiting Jonah up onto the shore. And that's where chapter 3 picks up here today. God is a God of pursuit. He's a God of deliverance. And now today we're going to see God's great big love in forgiveness. He's a God who forgives and gives second chances. I want to read our passage this morning. And then I want to come back and I want to highlight three ways that we see God's great big love in forgiveness in Jonah chapter 3. So Jonah chapter 3, 10 verses. Let's take a look at the screen. Read this together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. What an incredible display of God's grace and forgiveness. Our God is a God of second chances. And 
Here in our passage this morning, we see the reality of God's great big love and forgiveness in three ways. Number one, we see God's great big love and forgiveness through a second chance. The prodigal prophet got a second chance. How different Jonah's response is today from what we saw a couple weeks ago. The word of the Lord came to Jonah and he ran. Today, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and he obeyed. And one of the greatest revelations in the book of Jonah is found here in Jonah 3, verse 1. Verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Isn't that an amazing statement, friends? The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Did Jonah deserve a second time for running, for rebelling, for fleeing God's will? Jonah didn't deserve it. But still, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And I want you to imagine for a moment, what if Jonah's story had ended with Jonah being vomited out of the whale onto the beach? What if that's where the story ended? I mean, I mean, that would have been a pretty good ending to the story, right? I mean, he rebels, God pursues him, God delivers him in this miraculous whale, and the whale spits him up on the beach, and there's Jonah laying on the beach, and he's all good. I mean, if that's where the story ended, that would have been a pretty decent story. That would have been pretty good. But I want you to understand something this morning, friends. God's great big love doesn't settle for pretty good. God pursues us in our rebellion. He delivers us in our distress, and then he redeems us for recommissioning. You see, God wasn't through with Jonah yet. He had bigger plans for Jonah's life than to just see Jonah laying on the beach. God rescued Jonah to put him back on mission. God had plans and purposes for Jonah. And friends, the same is true for each and every one of us. When God's grace shows up in your life, know this. God is not looking for trophies, okay? He's not looking to to mark off another victory. Look, there's another person I've forgiven. He's not looking for trophies. He is looking for teammates who will join him in advancing the glory of his name. God always redeems for the sake of recommissioning. God has a plan and purpose for the brokenness in your life. He wants to use it for the sake of his glory. Over in Japan, there's a centuries-old artistic tradition that the Japanese have developed. It's called kintsugi. And kintsugi is an incredible form of pottery where the Japanese will take a broken piece of ceramic pottery. And this pottery that's been shattered and broken, the Japanese have discovered that if they use an epoxy laced with gold, they can actually restore this broken pottery and turn it into something very beautiful. And so they'll shatter these pots or bowls or cups on the ground and they'll pick them up and then using this gold epoxy will piece them back together and the artwork becomes more beautiful than what it was originally because of the gold that unites it together. And and, and for the Japanese, they look at the brokenness And they look at the scars, and the brokenness is still there. But it's been made beautiful by the gold that holds it together. And friends, that's the same way that God's grace works in our lives. God takes the brokenness of our lives. He takes our rebellion. He takes our our distress. 
He takes our cries and our pain and our hurt and he mends them. He puts them back together. And by the grace that he offers us, he makes us whole once again. But friends, the scars still remain. The wounds from the past still remain, but now they've been filled with the glory of the grace of God. We can't change our past, but God can take our past and turn it into something beautiful that's used for his glory, for his purposes. See, God has a habit of taking broken vessels and using them to display his glory. We, we see this truth all throughout Scripture. You go through Scripture, Noah, he got drunk in front of his sons. Abraham trafficked his own wife, Sarah. Moses committed murder. Rahab was a prostitute. David had an affair and tried to cover it up by committing murder. Peter denied knowing Jesus three different times. And we could go on and on. The Bible is full of broken people who God restored and used them for his glory. See, like Jonah, every one of those individuals I just mentioned experienced God's great big love in forgiveness. We see in Scripture a God who redeems, who restores, and then recommissions. And why does he do that? He does it because our God is a God of second chances. He's a God of second chances. And friends, this is the message of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the God of second chances. And so maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you're thinking your life is broken beyond repair. Maybe you look at your life and it just looks like everything's falling apart and maybe you feel like your best days are behind you. But I want you to know something this morning, friends. When God looks at you today, he doesn't see pieces. He sees possibilities. And so no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the story of Jonah emphatically declares that our God is a God of second chances. And if you'll humble yourself before him, and if you'll turn and trust in his great big love, you too can experience the artistry of his grace in your life. Like Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What a great promise that is. What a great hope that is for us this morning. Secondly, this morning, we see God's great big love in forgiveness in a simple message, a simple message. See, Jonah obeys God, and he goes to Nineveh the second time. And the second time, Jonah, in his obedience, proclaims the message to the Ninevites. Jonah says, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. That was the message God gave Jonah. It was a message of judgment. And friends, when the Ninevites heard Jonah's message of judgment from the Lord, The book of Jonah tells us that the city of Nineveh repented. The city of Nineveh turned to God in repentance. Chapter 4 later next week will tell us that over 120,000 people were alive in the city of Nineveh. Friends, if that is true, which it is, it's in the word of God, this is the greatest revival in the history of humanity. 
There's never been a revival like this ever before or ever again in history. Over 120,000 people in a single city repent and turn to God. I mean, no evangelist ever experienced results like this. Not the Apostle Paul, not Billy Graham, not Greg Laurie, none of them. But Jonah delivers this message and the people of Nineveh repent. And what's amazing is this revival was based on a simple message. A simple message declared by a lowly servant of God. Look at verse 4. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Friends, we're talking nine words. Nine words. Are you kidding me? No three-point outline. No PowerPoint presentation. No flashy delivery. Nine words. And revival spread throughout the whole city. I spent 30 minutes, 30 hours this week on this message. Are you kidding me? Nine words and he gets that kind of response? So why did the Ninevites respond to Jonah's message? Historians suggest two reasons. God had prepared the Assyrian people for Jonah's message. See, just before Jonah's ministry, there had been a series of calamities that the Assyrian Empire had experienced. There was a huge plague that wiped out a large population of the people. There was a famine, and the people went for a number of years with with little food. They were starving. And, And there was also a solar eclipse that took place around this time. And so some historians suggest that God had prepared the Ninevites with all of these natural wonders and calamities to believe that that they were facing the impending judgment of the gods. And so when this prophet from Israel showed up and declared 40 more days and judgment is going to come on Nineveh, the Ninevites were ready. They were ready to repent and turn back to God. Other historians suggest that the reason the Ninevites responded to God was because that Jonah's story preceded him, right? I mean, What if somebody got there a week before and said, you're never going to believe what I just heard back in Israel last week. There was a prophet who ran from God. He got swallowed by a whale. He was inside of a whale for three days and he's still alive. What if the people of Nineveh had heard the story of Jonah and now the prophet who survived the whale for three days shows up at their gates and says, the God who rescued me says that your judgment is coming. Maybe they believed Jonah because they had seen the reality of what took place in his life. Regardless of the historical circumstances, friends, the reality is there's just one sure explanation for this revival. Why did this revival take place? It was because God's Spirit was on the move. It was the Holy Spirit that was at work in the hearts of the people of Nineveh. See, friends, the reality is no matter the means or the method, there's ultimately no salvation that ever takes place apart from the initiating grace of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You may remember John chapter 3, the story of the Pharisee Nicodemus. And the Pharisee Nicodemus comes to Jesus and asks Jesus, Jesus, how can I be born again? How, How can an adult, a grown man, be born again? And what does Jesus say to Nicodemus? I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born 
of the Spirit. How are we born again? Jesus says the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. Our salvation, friends, is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's sort of like a sailboat, right? If you picture a sailboat out on the water, friends, if the wind's not blowing, what's that sailboat doing? It's dead in the water, right? It's just sitting there. But when that wind picks up and billows out those sails, suddenly that sailboat is on the move. And friends, that's the same way that God works in our salvation. When the Holy Spirit moves in our hearts, and what we see in the story of Jonah is whenever the Holy Spirit intends to move, the simplest message can make a huge impact. God didn't need Billy Graham to go to Nineveh. He sent a guy covered in whale guts with a nine-word message. And the people of Nineveh responded. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had empowered and inspired Jonah's message. See, we often think that we need to be equipped with some elaborate presentation or we have to be ready with all the answers. We have to know all the answers to any question somebody might ask us. But friends, understand this. The message of Jonah tells us that the power of the gospel is not in our presentation. It's in the person we present. That's the power of the gospel. It's in the person of Jesus Christ and in the life-giving grace that the Holy Spirit works in a person's heart. I found a great illustration of this just this past week as I was studying for this message this morning. It was the story of Charles Spurgeon's conversion. Charles Spurgeon is one of the most famous pastors in history. He was known as the Prince of Preachers. He ministered in the late 1800s. And Charles Spurgeon came to know Christ in a very incredible way. Nothing flashy, nothing special. Let me read this account from a biography on Spurgeon that talks about how he was converted. He was a boy at the time, and he had gone to a primitive Methodist chapel whose pulpit was filled on that particular morning by a man who had no education and who could barely read or write. He preached on the text, look unto me and be ye saved. He stuck to the text for he had little else to say. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now look and don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot to look. It ain't lifting your finger, it's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look, even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. After about 10 minutes of such preaching, the speaker had quite exhausted what he had to say. But he noticed the young Spurgeon sitting under the balcony. And fixing his eyes on him, he went on, Young man, you look very miserable. And you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you, obey, if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. It wasn't a polished sermon, but it was a true sermon based on God's word. And God blessed it. And Spurgeon was converted. Friends, God used a simple, uneducated preacher to lead the prince of preachers to Jesus Christ. 
See, the reality we need to understand is that our inadequacies are often God's opportunities. This is what the Apostle Paul understood when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 19, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. God's grace is sufficient, friends. You don't need to be a trained preacher. You don't need to have the gift of evangelism. You just need to be willing and faithful. I remember when I was a college pastor in my first church where I served, we had trained a, a college ministry team to go down on spring break to, to share the gospel on the beaches with the spring breakers. And, and we sent this team, and they went down, about 20 students, and they would go down to the beach every day and share the gospel. And, and one afternoon, I got a call back at my church here in Minnesota, and, and a young man who had gone through the training and been on this trip, he called, and he was all excited. He said, Jason, you won't believe what happened today. He said, I went down to the beach and I walked up to this group of guys and I started sharing the gospel. But he said, Jason, I tell you, it was the worst gospel presentation that's ever been declared. He said, I forgot half the message. I forgot the words. I was stumbling over my words. I couldn't answer any of their questions. But I just just kept sharing what God had done in my life. And he said, you want to know something, Jason? When I got to the end of sharing, three of those guys wanted to pray and receive Jesus. I couldn't believe it. He was so excited. See, friends, understand this. God doesn't need your talent. He just needs your trust. He doesn't need people with fame or fashion or special features. He needs people with a simple faith in the power of his word. And when we step out in faith and trust in the simplicity of the gospel empowered by the Holy Spirit, God can do miraculous things. So so how about you this morning? Who might God be putting on your heart today? Who's he calling you to step out in faith and share the gospel with? See, remember this, friends. The message of the gospel is very simple. We often work ourselves up and make it so much more than it needs to be. You can summarize the message of the gospel in one single Bible verse. If you can memorize one simple Bible verse, you can share the gospel with anyone. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, if you can remember that one single verse, you can share the gospel with anyone. We are dead in our sins. God is holy and we are rebellious and this leads to separation from God. But God in his great love for us sent his son, Jesus Christ, He gave us a free gift of eternal life through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And when we receive that gift by faith, God invites us to become his children and gives us new life. Friends, if you can remember that simple verse, you can share the gospel with any person in the world. And I'll tell you something, when the simplicity of the gospel is paired with a simple step of faith that's empowered by the Holy Spirit, that's when you'll make an impact for all of eternity. Friends, don't ever doubt that God could use you. You just have to be willing to be used. Number three this morning, we see God's great big love and forgiveness in a surprise response. Jonah declares the message of judgment to the people of Nineveh, and Jonah chapter 3 tells us that all the Ninevites go on to repent of their sins. They, they put on sackcloth and they go and they, they sit out in the dust of the streets. Sackcloth are like heavy burlap sacks. 
And they put on sackcloth as a sign of repentance, as a sign of mourning, as a sign of, of confessing their sins to God. And the whole city ultimately repented and was in mourning and fasting and weeping over their sin. And the king heard about it. And the king went out in the streets and sat in the dust with sackcloth on. And he issued a decree that the whole city, even the animals, should be put in sackcloth and should go on a fast in prayer that God might relent of his judgment. What a surprise response. You would have never imagined this kind of outcome. Let me make three brief observations about this last point. Number one, revival often begins with ordinary people. Revival often begins with ordinary people. Friends, let me ask you a question. Why is it that we so often pray for people in positions of power, and yet we so often forget to pray for people in positions of proximity to us, right? We're quick to pray for presidents and governors and congressmen and senators, and yet how often do we pray for our next-door neighbors? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for those officials. That's a biblical command. We pray for our ruling authorities. But I think it's easy for us to pray for these people who we do not know and yet forget to pray for the people who are closest to us. The revival in Nineveh began with ordinary people. Ordinary people repenting of their sins, and it led to a revival that spread, and when the king heard about it, he couldn't ignore it. And the king then repented of his sins. It was a revival spurred on by ordinary people. Friends, what if we began praying for revival in our neighborhoods? What if we began praying for our next-door neighbors? What if we began praying for revival in our communities? What if we really believed that God could still do today what he did back then? You believe that's possible? It starts when God's people pray and live faithfully as his ambassadors, sharing the hope of the gospel with those closest to us. Second observation, revival always leads to repentance. Revival always leads to repentance. Was the revival in Nineveh genuine? You bet it was. How do we know? Because we see it in the fruit of the lives of the people. They humbled themselves before God. Their response to Jonah was more than just lip service. They put on burlap sacks. They sat out in the streets in repentance and mourning and confession, praying that God would relent of his judgment. See, understand this, friends. Genuine conversion will always be evidenced by the fruit of faith. That's what our whole series this past summer was all about in the book of James. Genuine conversion is always evidenced by the fruit of faith. It it will always manifest itself in works. There will be marks of authenticity with a genuine heart change. I had a neighbor just a week ago who cut down a crabapple tree in his front yard. Why did he cut it down? Because it was dead. It wasn't producing any fruit. But you want to know something interesting? Just about five, six months ago, back in the spring, that tree looked like all the other trees in our neighborhood. It was barren, no leaves, no fruit. It looked like every other tree. But over the course of a few months, it became evident that that tree was dead. It wasn't producing any fruit. See, genuine life produces fruit. And that's how it works in our salvation. Revival always leads to repentance. Now, there's a word of warning in this point for us today too, friends. 
You can't be a disciple of Jesus and continue living in rebellion and disobedience against him. So you understand that. What's the word disciple mean? The word disciple literally means follower. Friends, it's hard to follow Jesus when you're on a ship headed for Tarshish. And so if you're calling yourself a follower of Jesus today, a disciple of Jesus, the fruit of your life should bear testimony to that reality. This is a passage that reminds us, that challenges us that repentance is available. Sometimes repentance is necessary. Maybe for some of us this morning, it's time to repent of our rebellion and turn back to the Lord. Observation number three, revival leads to restoration. Nineveh's standing with God was restored. How do we know? We know because God didn't destroy them. See, understand this, friends. God's judgment in this life is always conditional. God's judgment in this life is always conditional. He is a holy God. He cannot tolerate sin, and he will judge sin. But he's also a God of grace and mercy and second chances if we'll humble ourselves and turn back to him. And so the story of Nineveh's revival is really good news for us today. Why is it such good news? It's good news because it reminds us that no person, no nation, no situation is ever beyond the forgiveness and restorative power of God's great big love. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture, 2 Chronicles 7:14. God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. What an incredible promise of hope and of grace and of second chances. And friends, understand this. This promise was given to the nation of Israel, but this promise wasn't just for Israel. This promise is true for you too. And so if you're here this morning and you find yourself in a position where you're in need of God's grace and restoration in your life, then let me encourage you today, humble yourself before him. Look to Jesus, call upon his name, and you too can know God's great big love and forgiveness. Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this powerful story of the prophet Jonah. And I thank you, Lord, for what we see here in chapter 3. You weren't finished with Jonah when you brought him back to that beach out of the mouth of the whale. But that was just the beginning of your grand plan and purpose for his life, a plan that ultimately led to the revival of some of the most evil people in the world, a supernatural, miraculous revival that came through the simple declaration and a simple man who boldly went in faithfulness. Lord, I just pray that all of us here, that your people here, Lord, would not only know you, the God of second chances, but that we might boldly live and proclaim the message of second chances in our own life. That we might offer the grace and forgiveness that's available in Jesus Christ to those in our lives who need that grace and forgiveness as well. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of second chances. If there's anybody here this morning, Jesus, who needs to call out to you today and seek your face, humble themselves before you, Lord, I pray that they would do that right here and right now. 
that they would acknowledge their need for you, and that they would meet you here today. The God who forgives, the God of second chances, and that they might know the joy of living in fellowship with you and pursuing you and walking with you faithfully. God, thank you for your faithfulness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.